Hey, what's up, guys? Brett Henry, MG Leadership Series. Really excited to be back, closing out 2022 and have a really special session to close out the year. Two of my favorite uh, analysts in Southeast Asia. In fact, the two, two people that I would consider the top thinkers and the top uh, consultants slash business analysts covering Southeast Asia travel and beyond, uh, Gary Bowerman and Hannah Pearson. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Good Thank afternoon. You. Good afternoon, Hannah. Hello, everybody. Yeah, good afternoon. Welcome. And, and I want to tell you both that, that that introduction is quite sincere. I've been working in Southeast Asia since 2003. Sounds like I was a kid, but I wasn't that much of a kid then. Um, but I've been focused on travel in Southeast Asia since 2003. And I got to be honest, uh, pre-pandemic, pre-Southeast Asia travel show, which I'll let you talk about what that is, um, I had not heard of either one of you, and I'm quite sure we hadn't met, right? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think yeah, we had. I don't think we had Brett. Yes, but we've so, done a few so, shows together ever since. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it, it turns out, you know, you guys have really been grinding during the pandemic because somewhere during that two-year period, you both become my go-to resource when I look at, uh, you know, what's going to happen next in Southeast Asia travel. I think you've really established yourselves um, across the market as kind of the two thought leaders in this space. So, so well done on that. And why don't you give us a brief introduction of yourselves as well as talk about uh, the, the Southeast Asia Travel Show. All right, Gary, you go first then. <laughs> well, thanks, Brett. That's very kind of you. Um, well, Hannah and I initially agreed to start doing the, the Southeast Asia Travel Show back in 2019. I think it was about August of that year. And we had this idea that, I mean, my, most of my background had been in China and Northeast Asia. Hannah had been working in Southeast Asia. But we had this idea to put together a podcast that brought together travel and tourism and all the other things that go with it around the region. Uh, and we were going to start this at the end of 2019 and kickstart into 2020. And then obviously the world completely changed. Everything shut down. And, and I guess quite strangely, that gave us more of a platform because we had more people that were sat at home, more people were willing to learn and to engage with us and to come on, on the show, talk to us, tell us what was happening or what wasn't happening. Uh, and yourself, Brett, we managed to connect with you. Um, yeah. So that's really where we came. And then, you know, we've been doing a lot of work in, in other elements as well uh, over the past two and a half years. But, you know, the, the, the Southeast Asia Travel Show has been has been our platform. We've, we've loved doing it. We've, we listened to I think it's 94 countries around the world. Uh, so that just shows you that the interest in, in Southeast Asian travel and tourism is definitely there, particularly over the last, I would say, six to eight months. The number that the listenership around the world has, has really increased. Um, so, yeah, the, the interest is there. And uh, let's hope that picks up in 2023. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Welcome. Hannah. Yeah, I mean, I think Gary has, has said a lot about the Southeast Asia travel show um, there, but yeah, I mean, we, we started it because we're both passionate and we feel that Southeast Asia is the region to watch out for. And of course, you know, the last couple of years, the pandemic has taken a big hit and everybody has, has you know, pointed to it and criticized it for keeping its border restrictions and everything else. But, you know, it's coming back and I think it's going to come back with a vengeance. And uh, it, it's, it's really a region to, to watch going into 2023. Great, great. So welcome both of you to the show. Today, I want to talk about 2020. 22, kind of where are we at? Um, um, any big things that happened, but less about the past, more about where did we end up in 2022? Um, and then talk about what to expect for 2023. So I know everyone's probably already fixed their budget. Some of uh, your observations may make them nervous uh, when they think about their budget assumptions. Uh, but that'll be the focus for our discussion today. And 
One of the things that um, I, I've really followed during the pandemic, Hannah, is your weekly update on the state of each market. I thought this is a great place to start um, in terms of what's happening. You know, where are we at now as we come into December 2022 in terms of the recovery? Yeah, that's a great one. And I mean, like, like you said, this is something I've been tracking with Gary, the podcast, and also through Per Anderson uh, since back February 2020. And I've put together these, these color-coded charts. So Dimas, maybe you can pull up where we were where we were. This was in January, right? And this is a kind of snapshot on in terms of what's happening in terms of lockdowns, where we were with domestic travel, where we were with inbound travel, where we were with outbound travel. Um, and you can see domestic travel, okay, relatively open in uh, in January last year, but inbound travel, we had all of these travel corridors, right? We had the travel bubbles, we had these VTLs. It was a very complicated picture. And the same for outbound travel too. Fast forward to now, um, to December, it's all green, right? So what a difference 12 months makes. And I think the biggest thing for me here is that governments haven't backtracked, really. We have just seen this forward progression. Last year, it was a lot of, you know, going forward and then going back and easing restrictions and then banging them back down again. This time, governments have kind of carried through with it, I guess, because they realize the state of their economy and they have to. Um, but, you know, as vaccinations have arisen, people's fear levels have dropped. This acceptance towards an endemic state. Um, a couple, yeah, a couple questions, a couple, yeah. que or maybe one observation and a question. Mm. Um, I, I completely forgot about travel bubbles and VTL. Right. What a ridiculous <laughs> idea that seems like now, you know? Yeah. I, I completely forgot those were even proposed, but but how ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but uh, what? One question I have when I look at this shift from that first chart where internationally everything's kind of partially locked down to completely green, what do you think the catalyst was? I mean, what was the moment where everything shifted and started to go green? Hmm. What do you think, Gary? I think that that would be towards maybe the end of Q1. And I don't know whether it was, it was almost a kind of domino. If I think Thailand and Singapore were really taking big strides towards reopening in a fuller way and of course when they reopened in a fuller way there were still lots of tests and things but they were kind of planting that that flag in the sun and saying we're doing this and the rest of the countries were all rushing to catch up I think what's your take Gary? Um, I think so I think it was a combination of economic reality that really couldn't hold out any longer these government these governments had to reopen their economies they had to open their travel economies also vaccine the vaccine rates were, were kicking on at that time so you know, people were, were covered. And also, I think there was a, a widespread acceptance that Omicron hadn't been as devastating as the Delta wave and that actually there, actually Omicron gave the region more of an opportunity to manage the virus and manage how we live with it going forward, which includes travel. Whereas previously with the Delta virus, uh, governments just locked down and decided that they, they couldn't reopen. Um, but, you know, by, by the end of the first quarter of this year, it was becoming obvious that the economies just needed to reopen. Mm. So this is a great chart, you know, and a great picture you paint, Hannah, with everything green. It sounds like, you know, everything looks beautiful for people running travel businesses like me. Um, but <laughs> let's let me let me like challenge you with, you know, everything's green. And that is a great shift from what you showed, you know, we were at in January. But let's talk about some things that didn't happen in mm. 2022. So it did happen that all the markets are now open. What are, what are some of the top things that didn't happen in 2022 that you thought would happen? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one really 
um, and I'm going to throw this to Gary, is of course China, right? So we've just been talking about everybody's policies and the fact that everything is reopening in Southeast Asia and they've all realized that they can't keep closed anymore. Mm. And of course, mm. China didn't come back. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't. It hasn't yet. I, I think the, looking at, at Hannah's, the, the two elements to, to talk about there, looking at Hannah's um, diagram there, is that Although Southeast Asia opened its its borders at the what the second quarter of this year, most of Northeast Asia didn't. That came much later in the year. So Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, these are really important inbound and outbound markets for for Southeast Asia. Korea, South Korea was a little bit more liberal, but but the travel volumes haven't been huge. But the big one is China. You know, China accounted for twenty two point five percent of all visitors to ASEAN in twenty nineteen, and wow. we've seen this year it's had the lockdowns. Uh, the city lockdowns, it had the, the political scenario to go with that. It does look as though there is going to be, um, the outbreak is going to get much, much worse over the next couple of months in China. It's going to be a difficult winter in China. Um, but the possibility are, as we saw in our countries, that once the virus actually runs through countries, that actually encourages governments to open up because there's simply no reason to lock down anymore. You, you, travel can't make this any worse. The virus is going to be uh, going through the country. But yes, China it, it hasn't reopened. And you know, the, the, you can see the impact of that. You can see that in the impact in the airlines. You can see that impact in the visitor numbers, in the hotel rates. Uh, it, it's, it's so important to Southeast Asia. So I don't want to make it a, a political discussion, but you know, why is it that China is the last to open in, in this region? Um, why, why, have they, why have they adopted a different uh, approach than other markets? I know this well, is probably very obvious to you, but I would guess many people don't don't really understand what's happening and why they haven't opened. I think well, two things there. I mean, it is it is a very political decision. China is always very hard to second guess. The way that the the Communist Party runs the country is very very difficult. Let's remember if we go back to well, it's, it, we're into a fourth year now. The, the the coronavirus was actually first established in the city of Wuhan at the end of November three years ago. So it, we're actually moving into the fourth year of the virus. And I think this, the, the first lockdown that we saw globally um, was in China. You know, at the beginning of 20, 2020, Wuhan was locked down, so was that province. And then we saw other lockdowns. And then we saw that China actually came through it quite well. And it, although it didn't open its borders, there was quite a lot of travel activity in 2020, the second half, and then 2021. But it had this zero COVID policy. And it wasn't the only country. Let's remember, Australia had it, New Zealand had it. There were other countries around the world that went COVID zero, but there just came a realization that simply this virus isn't going to go away and that, you know, you have to find a way to manage and live with it. Australia and New Zealand moved down that route. And it does look now as though China is going to go that way over the next next few months. Well, I want is to come back to that. I want to come mm. back to that. China's going to going to change in the next few months. Interesting prediction. Uh, <laughs> Hannah, Hannah, keep going. Yeah, I was going to ask Gary, is, is it down to vaccination rates as well? I mean, that was something that I was reading that they they have a lower percentage of uh, elderly population who are vaccinated. Is that? It has a low percent of elderly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's similar to Hong Kong. If you, if you remember what happened in Hong Kong a few months ago, it was very, they tried everything, carrot and stick to get elderly people to take the vaccination and they just refused. And that's been the same case in China. The problem with China is China does have a very, very large elderly population and particularly in areas where healthcare isn't uh, particularly strong. And that's been the fear all along. If the virus does rip through, then a lot of people will lose their lives. And that, that inevitably might happen. I mean, we saw that in India. That was one of that. One of the big fears for China was what happened with India, the Delta wave back in, what was that, 
April, May 2020. So there are a number of reasons. The size of the population often works in China's favor in economic terms, but it doesn't in something like a virus. And I think we have to weigh that, take that into account. I think China is a great one in terms of what didn't happen. So I'll give you a, a gold star for that as a pick on what didn't happen. In, in fact, uh, when, when William and I were building the budget for MG for 2022, you know, we're super aggressive. We want to achieve a lot. Um, and we assumed that China would open actually in second half. But just to be safe, we put it in the fourth quarter of 2022. Um, and, and obviously that didn't happen. And it, it's, it causes a big miss. Um, so that's certainly one that I can agree with you on. I assumed that would happen, and it it uh, did not. And I'm interested to talk about what we expect on this big market. I think it's a number one. You said 22.5%. Does that make it the number one inbound market for every market in Southeast Asia? Most of them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, unless you count ASEAN as one market, in which case ASEAN is the top market for ASEAN, I think. Okay, okay. Uh, so let me move on to the second one, um, and, and maybe I can give you something that didn't happen that I thought would happen, and that would be we assumed also that Southeast Asia flights would return to normal volumes by the second half of this year, and it looked like we were going to be right as all the markets started to reopen. Um, but the reality is, you know, flights have restarted and the markets are open, but the flight volumes just not there. I was looking at some data from OAG uh, for I think it's last week. Um, and on an international basis, I think we're still 42% below 2019 uh, levels. Uh, let me see. Go down one more, one more chart. Yeah, this one. So South Southeast Asia, uh, I have domestic in the first column, international in the second column. Uh, that, this is from last week from OAG. 42% down from a seat capacity perspective in Southeast Asia. And this is just... Uh, self-explanatory in terms of the, the volume miss, you know, that we hoped was there um, in terms of getting back to 2019 volumes. Obviously, flight seats, not not at a one to one basis, but a lot of this translates into room nights. Right. So um, this has had a big impact on us. And it's definitely something that didn't happen that we certainly expected it to. Um, yeah, I'd agree. I think, Brett, there's there's two very close linkages there. If you look at Southeast Asia, which you were talking about there, minus 42.6, you look at the figure below it, Northeast Asia, minus 68.9. Mm. I think we've realized just how closely linked, interlinked, Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia were before the pandemic. And although Southeast Asian markets have started to reopen for three quarters of this year, it's been a very compressed year. Um, we didn't really see much activity from Northeast Asia until until about now, really, until the last month or so. So I think those those two figures are very closely linked. Mm. And Dimas, if you can pull up the Singapore Airlines um, passenger numbers as well, um, you can kind of see that here. So Singapore Airlines, you can see first quarter of the year, they, you know, Singapore reopened in a more serious way. Boom, you know, they're really adding on to seats. But look at it now, you know, that that month on month growth has really slowed down, particularly if you're looking at the, the blue line for Singapore Airlines itself. Um, it actually dipped down for a little point. Mm. Yeah, and why is that? Um, I'm not, I'm looking, it was just like a very small amount. So I don't know if it was more, maybe they were moderating it after perhaps some kind of summer peak travel period. I'm well, not I mean, sure. Why, it was is, not, uh, yeah. why, why is, is it slowing curve, down? Yeah. Why is mm. the curve flattened if there's still so much capacity to recover? Well, I think a lot of this that like Gary was saying again is down to China. They've got to a certain point now, but of course, you know, Singapore relies on a lot on transit traffic. They used to have a lot of transit traffic um, from China. To destinations as well and so they can't really push past this this certain point now i think 
without having China back. Sure, they can keep adding on some more frequencies. They can keep adding a few destinations here and there. But China is such a massive market for them that without them, it's, it's going to be really hard to reach back that 100%. And I think overlaying that is is Singapore Airlines' own strategy, which has changed. So they're although they have tried to rebuild capacity as quickly as they could, they're also moving now to try and dominate the markets that they they operate in. So they're doing some uh, team ups with things like Thai Airlines and and Malaysia Airlines to actually really take over competition in those markets, so they can actually increase their yields and raise their prices next year. So although it is a bit of a capacity play, it's also a very strategic play at the moment. And Singapore is also challenging against, you know, hubs that did really well during the past two years. So Istanbul and the Middle Eastern hubs did really, really well during the pandemic because they were open and Singapore wasn't. So although it's playing catch up, you know, Singapore Airlines is by, is by far the most strategized airline in our region, most well financed as well. Um, but I think it's, it's strategy is a long term play and they know what they're doing. And certainly they're looking at higher yield as well as capacity. So it's Singapore Airlines is driving up the flight prices. I've noticed that as I try to travel, it's very hard to find reasonable <laughs> reasonable airfares. Yeah, I mean, and that probably brings us back to the other thing, right? That just airfares haven't moderated um, as we've as we've gone through the year, and um, airfares remain high. And you know, even anecdotally, you you go to travel fairs like I do. I talk to a lot of travel agents about their group business, and they say, "Yeah, you know, the will is there. Travelers want to travel. They they want to go overseas, but they just can't get the group seats because they're they're just not at reasonable fares, and therefore they can't sell or they can't they can't get the seat at all on the plane. Um, and without these airfares coming down, again, that, that that's going to limit travel. Um, but I mean, this is also, I, I suppose, a reaction to one the high jet fuel cost. Um, and Dimas, I think we've got a, a slide there with the increase of, of jet fuel. How does, I guess jet fuel, yeah. fuel cost is one of the biggest costs for airlines. Yeah. Is it more than employee cost or the, sec the biggest after employee cost? Hmm. I'm not sure. Do you know, Gary? I don't know if it's more than employee cost, but it's it's certainly a, a significant factor. And it, with your employee costs, you uh, you can manage those because you know those across a year. You budget for the year. But when, when you have a, a fuel price, as you can see from that, uh, can, you, can you show that uh, that that graph again? Yeah. You can mm. see those peaks and troughs. You can just see how volatile it is. And so yeah. you know, that that relates to the supply of, of crude oil. It also relates to to price and demand. And I think we haven't. I mean, we were talking about China a few moments ago. You know, we don't really factor into the price of jet fuel, the demand for jet fuel that will come online when Chinese airlines start flying internationally again. So we'd probably expect that to start hiking up again. But you know, just just look at those peaks and troughs and how difficult that makes it for airline revenue managers to forecast their costs. Really, really difficult. And therefore, yeah. they're being passed on to the consumer. And then you also put that against the fact that a lot of them purchase in USD and local currencies here have depreciated a lot against the USD as well. And again, that, that adds to those operational costs. So it's not a surprise, I think, that airlines are being very cautious when it comes to restoring capacities and adding on frequencies. Um, because they really want to make sure that there is demand there before they add those those new flights because they don't want to fly an empty plane. So I'm looking forward to talking about 2023. Maybe we can shift gears, but I'd love to talk about each of these topics as well as anything else related to 2023. But let me summarize these three things that didn't happen, which were uh, China didn't open. Uh, airline flights, while, while they started, restarted, it's not back to 2019 levels yet by far. And third is you know, the price of a seat much, much higher uh, than we anticipated, which has to be somewhat of a factor. I guess we could debate how elastic 
travel demand is during the recovery, but certainly there is some level of elasticity to it. So pricing must be um, a factor to recovery. So let's talk about those three plus other things. You know, 2023 is uh, is kind of the topic of the day as we come into December. I know, Gary, you just recently were in U.S. at the Focus Right conference, right? Um, were there any insights from that event on, you know, I know it's probably more of a U.S. focused event given it takes place there, although I know, I know it's global, but uh, what, what was the view there in terms of what to expect for 2023 as a setup for our discussion on, on that year? Yeah, well, and pretty interesting. And then it's a good place to start because, you know, we've been talking about this on the podcast quite a lot this year, is if we go back through 2020 and 2021, the European market and the US market had periods where they were open, particularly during the summer season. So they had quite strong flight routes, they had quite strong uh, hotel and travel rebounds during 2020 and 2021. We didn't have that in Asia Pacific. So this year, I think it's quite difficult to explain um, to different markets when you're in different regions, just why Asia is so far behind and why it's playing catch up. And it is simply because we didn't reopen at all until, until this year, mostly. But in the US, they, they've had a strong rebound. You know, domestic travel has been going really, really strong. I think it's stronger than it was in 2019. In, inbound and outbound is also doing pretty well. The airlines have been doing well. The OTAs have been doing well. The hotels have been doing well. But there was a real sentiment coming towards the end of 2022 from all travel players that perhaps the peak of that first wave of recovery in the US market has started to taper. And that's starting to be shown in, in forward flight bookings, in hotel bookings, but most particularly in the, the stocks of travel companies, which seem to have gone past the peak period as they were maybe two or three months ago. So and there is why a do they, that, Why do they believe that's happening? What's, what's causing uh, it's, it? It's mostly economic sentiment that the US is heading towards a, a recession, that the tech companies are laying off huge amounts of people. And, and you know that, that has a real uh, sentiment effect on consumer demand, that kind of thing. And they're not seeing the forward bookings that they were. So I think they're expecting that the first quarter might not be too bad, but the second quarter in the U.S. market, we might start to see a drop. And that will obviously uh, impact Southeast Asia because we won't see so much traffic coming in and out of, of uh, from North America. Similar sentiment in Europe as well. Europe is going to have a real energy crunch this winter. You know, the price of energy is just going through the roof and that's going to impact people's ability to pay and to travel. So we could actually see next year, I mean, it depends what happens in our region, but we could actually see Asia actually start to accelerate its recovery a little bit and catch up that huge distance that it has between the US and the, and the European markets, not just because Asia is going to grow, but perhaps because the, the growth contraction in Europe and North America might be a little bit more pronounced. That's a good, that's a good setup. So, so Europe, I mean, uh, I guess the Western audience not real bullish on uh, prospects for 2023. Is that a good summary? I think fearful. I think the word that is always used at this time is, is cautious optimism. I think but people were actually throwing out there, and these were CEOs of some big hit, hitter companies that were saying that they weren't expecting to, to, hit, to hit the revenue levels that they have been during 2022, that's for sure. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's kind of interesting because um, there was just a quote that came out uh, just this week on the 29th. And this was from um, the chairman of the World Travel and Tourism Council, the WTTC. Of course, they've just had their, I think their, their conference was earlier in this week. And he'd, he, they're, they're very bullish. He'd said, that. it's not like it was a few decades ago when travel actually mirrored GDP. What we've seen now is GDP growth slowing, but projections for the growth of travel for next year are going to be something like double the GDP growth. Although I suppose if it's negative GDP growth, does that mean it's it's double the negative growth, right? Um, but yeah, it's like a very, 
positive. I mean, for some, I mean you were talking earlier about uh, currencies in, in Southeast Asia in particular have been hit quite hard by the strong dollar, but the, the dollar now is starting to weaken and probably will. If they, if they don't keep increasing uh, interest rates, the dollar perhaps could start to weaken, which will actually impact the, the US economy a lot more than it will here. So we could actually you know, see the, the, a positive tailwind from that in, in Asia Pacific and making our so currencies more, more valuable. So let's talk about what each of you expect for Southeast Asia for 2023. Maybe I can I can set up um, some thinking around that. Just looking at what is what did MG use as we built our budget for 2023. You know, I talked to a lot of uh, hotel specific or hospitality specific um, executives who are responsible for running businesses in the region to kind of get my insights. And the majority of them uh, believe that 2023 will bring them back by the end of the year, they will be slightly above 2019 levels and really dependent upon city. So I think overall, uh, my consensus was they will be at about 110% of 2019 by the end of 2023. Um, and depending on the destination, uh, the number could, could or the numbers were actually even a little bit larger than that, maybe 220, or sorry, 120%. Um, or for other destinations, uh, much more international dependent, uh, for example, Bali, um, a little bit less bullish, but still quite bullish, hoping to get back to right at 2019 levels uh, by the end of 2019. So I hope that gives you some insight for what I think some of the top hospitality leaders uh, were thinking about in terms of their budget assumptions for next year. And then in terms of MG, you know, we're we're forecasting uh, higher than market growth. So we think we think the market will grow uh, back to 2019 levels, plus plus or minus uh, 10% uh, by the end of 2023 as well. Uh, we plan to grow at 150%, so we're certainly looking to uh, outperform. Um, so that's kind of our view looking forward to 2023. What are you two kind of, as you go and counsel your clients, as I mentioned, I know you're some of the top thinkers. I know people must come to you looking for budget assumptions for next year. What are you, what are you advising your clients? as you look out to 2023 performance? I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it depends on the destination. And we have a very differentiated market. We have 10 different countries. And even within those countries, it's going to be very, very different. So there is going to be growth. Certain areas are definitely going to grow. Some areas can have very, very strong domestic travel next year. Some countries might have weaker growth. But there are huge variables. I mean, these variables that we've been talking about already still pertain and still run into 2023. So flight prices, flight availabilities, uh, flight frequencies. I think if we go back to 2020, uh, sorry, 2019, the key figure that drove travel in Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia across the 2010s, but particularly from 2015 through 2019, was frequency of travel. It wasn't about more people traveling, it was about more people traveling more frequently. And to get back to the numbers that the, the industry wants and that everybody would like to see the growth that we need, you, you're gonna have to start seeing people travel again more frequently. Now that's been a bit difficult this year for a number of reasons. It's been so compressed since we reopened. The flight prices have been quite high. Confidence is starting to return in international travel, but it took a while in some countries in our region. And so we would hope that that will come back in 2023. But we do need the, the low cost carriers to be flying frequently to the destinations people want to go to. They've got to offer the right fares. So that there are a number of variables. In terms of whether we're going to get back to 2019 numbers, across the region at the end of 2023, I would be doubtful. But I think some markets definitely will, will, will grow much, much stronger than others. Okay, so Brett's more bullish than Gary on 2023. Hannah, what say you? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not as uh, as optimistic as, as you, Brett. I think I'm probably taking a slightly more uh, cautious approach. I think Gary and I, in general, tend to be a, a cautious optimists, I think, on the podcast um, for 2023. But like Gary said, I mean, I think there are a few factors also at play, stuff, uh, things like visa entry requirements. So, for example, this year, Malaysia took a, a kind of interesting approach when it came to its international uh, tourist arrival settings. And it, it went for a low, I think it was a low 2 million, and then it raised that to 4 million and eventually said, right, we're going to get 9.2 million. And the tourism minister actually kind of backtracked on that uh, a few weeks ago. It said, oh, I don't think we're going to hit that because you, you know our, our visa processes are too difficult. And I think what she really meant was it's too difficult for Indian travelers to come in. And Malaysia had this whole breakdown in its online e-visa um, system, which meant that it made it very difficult for Indians to be able to apply for online visas through the um, Malaysian system. Um, and they had to actually go physically to an embassy. So I think there's a lot of factors like that in play. I mean, wow, that's Thailand, a huge, that's right? a huge That's a huge screw up. <laughs> yeah, I think the the local uh, tourism stakeholders here were not happy um, about that. I, mean, I was then, super interested in uh, yeah. uh, that your tourism minister will be disappointed to hear, but I was super interested to see some data we posted on Bali last week that does the, the number one arrivals for Bali is Australia, but surprisingly, the number two far and away was India. And I guess since Malaysia wasn't very easy, they're more and yeah. more are redirecting and Bali's the beneficiary, so... Oh, exactly. That, I mean, that was what she was saying. You know, she said, you know, Malaysia, we don't want Malaysia to be second or third choice. Um, and it, it looks like it, it will be. I mean, they, they don't announce their numbers every month like some of the other countries. So it's kind of hard to get a real feel for, for how we're doing. Um, but there's that. I mean, Thailand, even if they're looking for 2023, they have wildly differentiated targets depending on China reopening or not. So mm. I think their target, they say, if if Chinese arrivals remain as they are right now, and they do get a few that students or businessmen um we think we'll get about 18 million if china reopens i think they say that could grow to something like 38 million right that's that's the difference that things could happen so it's very difficult to predict and it comes down to this again like gary was saying it's really difficult to predict china um but as i keep saying i think like a broken record i do think that they really hold the keys to a lot of recovery um within the region and it's just going to depend how that plays out i think next year and when it plays out on on so so my my forecast is 110 percent. you guys are not yet back to 2019 is it you're aligned on <laughs> yeah that. i think so no, I'm, I not, think I'm, so. I'm not I'm talking I, I, about another reason brett i'll tell you why is, is i think you know if you go back over recent months South, southeast asia has had the market to itself pretty much um australia has been competing but there haven't really been like many flights from the region to australia um, but Japan is open again, South Korea is open again, and Australia is open again. And competition for travelers from our region is going to intensify next year. And those are, those are attractive destinations. And if the flight prices are affordable, if the flight frequencies are there, you know, they're going to attract a lot of travelers away from the region. So I think that's something uh, else that's great for the outbound uh, operators from the region, uh, but not for the inbound operators. Let, let me clarify, too, that my forecast is based on... Uh, not past numbers, uh, but sales numbers. Um, so <laughs> so feeding into my numbers are the higher airfares, the higher hotel, higher ADRs. Um, so so I, maybe maybe my view may be a different, a little bit different than yours. And maybe you're looking at passenger numbers. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about the results that travel companies will deliver. I think yeah. they will be delivering above 2019 revenue 
um, and well above because they retooled and got so much more efficient as they got lean during the pandemic, well above their 2019 uh, profitability numbers. Um, yeah. So that, that's maybe my. I would, no, I would agree with that. I mean, you can see that it's already happening with Singapore Airlines. You know, they're, they're delivering much bigger, better results. And we'll start to see that come through with some of the other companies as well. Not maybe not the state airlines, but then we do look at some of the low cost carriers and they're still struggling and they're still struggling to rebuild their balance sheet. So um, I think the hotel companies, I agree with you. I think the hotel companies will raise their rates and they, they will deliver better results for sure. Yeah, of course. See that we are aligned. I knew it. So, <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about those three things that didn't happen in 2019. And if you think they will happen in uh, 2023. So the, the first was, and the one that everyone's probably wondering the answer for is, you know, will China open? If so, when? Yeah, the discussion about will and when China opens, I think it will open, but I think it will be incrementally. And I don't think we'll see a huge announcement that China is suddenly reopened. And you will start and we are starting to see more international flights in and out of China. And that those will carry FIT travelers to shore. They, but they won't just come into our region. They'll go around the world. So we will start to see more Chinese traveling, no question. The issue about when China reopens really in, in most people's minds is when does it allow tour groups to, to start traveling again? Because they are still officially banned um, since January, 20 to, January 2020. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Second half of the year would be the earliest for that. Yeah. Second yeah. half will or second half maybe? Second half maybe. Fourth quarter, I would say almost certainly. Maybe the qualifier is when would when would Hannah market as a green on her chart? Fourth quarter. Fourth quarter. <laughs> yeah, Q4. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, what's your view? Fourth quarter, but with caveats. I, I I don't think it'll be fully open until 2024. Yeah, I mean Gary is by far uh, much much more of an expert on China um, than I do. He follows it far more closely. Um, so if he says Q4, I say Q4 as well. Um, but definitely as he alluded to earlier, when it does open, it's going to have positive repercussions, but it's also going to have some potentially, you know, some some fallout as well, potentially from this, you know, are we going to see these capacity issues that were hitting Europe and the US this year in Southeast Asia because of that? Are manpower levels back at that level ready to welcome Chinese travelers? Are Southeast Asian tourism businesses China ready in terms of have they got the right tech in place to be able to meet those expectations of Chinese consumers? There are a lot of things around China coming back that I think are going to yeah, raise issues with just how differently I think that the markets have developed. And unless destinations or tourism stakeholders have kept a very close eye on these kind of trends that have been going on in China, I think that they could be caught kind of unawares and, and unready to, to deal with that. Would you say that's fair, Gary? Yeah, it is. And it's a remarkable conversation to be having. I mean, you, you were talking about Brett, you know, we didn't know each other before the pandemic. You know, if, if we'd actually been talking three years ago and one of us had suggested that we wouldn't see Chinese travelers in the region for three whole years, everybody would have said, that's crazy, that won't happen. But it has happened. And, you know, although it does look as though zero COVID is going to be gradually dismantled, it won't be dismantled overnight. It's going to take a lot of time. And as we've seen in the reopenings of our countries across this region, it takes time to rebuild confidence, takes time to rebuild um, air, uh, air capacities. It takes time to rebuild the whole industry. Um, and although the Chinese industry is pretty agile, it's huge. The airlines have been operating domestically, so they are ready to fly. They don't have many planes on the ground. We have to wait and see what the demand is. In, in our forecast, we also assumed zero China in 2023. The the leader of one of the biggest hotel brands in the in the region 
um, also told me he assumed zero. But while I, while in my budget, I assume zero. My prediction is Brett's prediction, not the MG prediction. <laughs> my prediction is that by the second quarter of this year, we will start to see the market will essentially qualify as green on Hannah's chart, but there just won't be the flight volume there. So restarting those flights, um, getting that whole business working again will just take time. So you won't see the volumes, um, but you are going to get a green box uh, with no quarantine to return uh, by sometime in the second quarter. That's uh, my prediction. So again, I'm so much more optimistic. <laughs> you are. But can I, I, like I throw, a, throw a question at Gary, Brett, about, about this? So Gary, pre-pandemic or even now, how short a booking window do Chinese travelers have? So let's say, you know, are they, if, if they're booking, is it six months ahead? Is it two weeks ahead? Um, how quickly really, after if turning green are we going to see these results? <laughs> really varies because it's a huge market. So you're, you're catering for everything from backpackers through to super luxury travels, and they all have their own different windows. The business market, which is very, very important to a lot of countries around the region, that tends to book a lot further out. If you're coming to the region just for a four or five day holiday, it can be much, much shorter. And actually domestic booking windows in China during the pandemic have been so short because people have been worried that if there was a lockdown there, they wouldn't actually be able to take their trip anyway. So in some cases, people have been booking on the day they travel. Um, but are these transient phenomenons probably are simply because of the, the, the situation, the circumstances that the country's been going through. But if, you know, for that first trip after people travel outbound from after three, three years, there's going to be a huge amount of caution, safety and security and, and hygiene can be very, very important. And people will be selecting destinations they trust that they'll be able to get to and get back from quite, quite safely. So booking windows won't be as short as they were before the pandemic, I don't think, but they won't be super long either. That doesn't really help, does it? <laughs> that was a cop out of an answer. <laughs> so let's move to the, the next, uh, what didn't happen and talk about what we can expect for 2023 on return turn of flight volume. So we talked about the domestic getting close to 2023 levels already uh, in most markets and some markets actually above. Um, but international across the board, uh, just really far behind. What do you expect in 2023? Is that going to really catch up in first quarter or even by the end of the year, you, you expect will still be a bit behind 2019 levels? I think it's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of tour operators across the region in recent weeks, and it's amazing how many of them have actually you know, pivoted quite strongly towards domestic markets. You know, they've apportioned much more costs, much more resource and much more staffing and, and product development to their domestic markets than they did before, which suggests that they believe, um, that in, at least for next year, perhaps even into 2024, that domestic is going to still be very, very strong. In terms of the international market, how that's going to rebound, I mean, there are so many variables, as we've already discussed. Um, Hannah, what, what do you think about that? But I, I mean, I do think that this this drive towards domestic, both amongst consumers and amongst the industry itself, is not a transient issue. It's it's not going away. Yeah, I mean, I think we are going to start to face, at least in certain markets, I think overcapacity in domestic markets. That certainly, if I'm thinking about Malaysia, we've had the launch of uh, my airline, a new low cost airline that are competing, ultra low cost airline competing against uh, Air Asia. They started their first flights yesterday. Um, and Malaysia Airlines already a couple of weeks ago said that they are going to start putting more focus onto the international markets rather than domestic markets because of this issue of overcapacity, at least within Malaysia. I mean, a Malaysian market is one that is known, kind of notoriously known for being at a kind of overcapacity for domestic. But I think we're going to see this gradual rebuilding. It is of, of capacity in general. Um, you know, it is not going to be a suddenly, bam, 
um, everything rebuilds, it's just going to be gradual, gradual, 5% month on month increase, something like that until eventually it gets back. And again, I'm a bit like a broken record, but I think it won't be until they are allowed to operate more routes to China, then we will reach back. So whether we're reaching back to kind of full capacity is very much reliant on when China properly reopens. But it seems like yeah. even in even in Southeast Asia, the the volumes just aren't there. I mean, the frequency Jakarta to Bali is great, but the frequency, you know, Jakarta to other Southeast Asian cities just isn't back to 2019 levels. What what what's what's causing that? Is like airlines wanting to keep fares high, or why why aren't we able to accelerate that return, or why aren't airlines accelerating that return? I think, well, I think it's it, it's the element. Of, sorry, Hannah. I think it's it's the element of airlines wanting to rebuild their balance sheets for sure. They want to keep yields high and they want to keep flights as high as they can. But I think they're just being more cautious than before. They don't want to have lost leader flights because they don't want those losses to accumulate again. So they're being very very careful. I think Tony Fernandez said this a couple of weeks ago that we are now in a new airline era and airline CEOs now are very much focused on profit, whereas before they were tended to be a little bit more focused on market share or, or revenue, but now it's about profit because they have to. They can't go into another potential scenario like they did with COVID, carrying the losses and the, the, the inefficiencies they had. So the industry has changed. I don't think there's any doubt about it. The airline industry is now much more focused on profit. And that, of course, means that for consumers, we're not getting the same deals as we did before. And as you said, Brett, absolutely right. You know, the frequencies flying from from Malaysia to some of the cities around the region, just nowhere near what they used to be. And that obviously has an impact on consumers' ability to travel and also the price. Yeah. I mean, and then it's the whole bringing back um, planes that were um, put into shelter. I can't think what the word is, but yeah, put into... Um, cold storage. Yes. Or there we go. That's the word. It's Friday afternoon. I'm losing my words now. Yeah, put into cold storage and having to reactivate that, having to reactivate the pilots who can fly them, make through the, they go through the training, the cabin crew, the immigration's got all this. It's a whole process, isn't it, to make sure that everything is in place, that the baggage holders, are there sufficient numbers of those? I mean, that's Bangkok Bumi has been criticized, I think, for that recently, that baggage holders are taking hours to get the baggage back to customers and so you need to have all of these things in place to be able to ramp back up that capacity as well and i think airlines um, and airports are also being quite cautious about that having seen the chaos that was europe and the us over the summer well i think so i guess tied to that the the last that didn't happen is airfares didn't come down it sounds like based on flight capacity not coming back the focus uh gary you said on maintaining profitability probably mean we can't expect lower airfares in 2023. Again, it, it's it's quite difficult to forecast. I think across the board, no, I don't think so. I think as, as competition builds on certain routes, as, as you start to see Bali routes, for example, perhaps, or Phuket routes start to build and you've got more flights and more airlines competing on those routes, you may see more competitive fares. But on longer haul routes, I, I just don't think we'll see much movement downwards. In fact, the opposite, I think they'll go up. Hmm. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they will go up. I, I feel it may be a bit more more optimistic that as you know, hopefully, we have seen jet fuel prices starting to decrease. Hopefully that will continue the decrease. And um, like you said, the USD is also weakening a little bit against the currencies. Hopefully that will work in its favor. And as competition is, is there, I mean, and potentially, even um, right now, of course, there is an excess of demand versus capacity. 
maybe this is just the kind of that initial pent up um, demand. Once that slackens a little bit, perhaps um, as the economy starts to bite next year, we may well see then airlines having to give a bit more competitive fares to fill up the plane. Um, mm. So yeah, I've, I'm, I'm mixed on that one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in my heart. I hope it's going to go down because <laughs> it's too yeah, expensive. So, so interesting <laughs> debate on, on these three topics, but I think we can all agree that uh, while these are all challenges, you know, China opening, uh, bringing back flight capacity, bringing the price of travel down. Um, these are challenges, but these are also reasons to expect there's more growth ahead for travel in Southeast Asia in 2023. So I'm actually uh, encouraged by all three of those factors that we're back to healthy levels. Airlines in some of the airlines in the region are reaching, you know, attractive economics. I um, mean, it still looks like we're very early in the larger recovery, unlike your perspective from uh, North America. So I don't, I don't agree with that view at all. I'm really bullish on continued growth in this region in 2023. Um, I want to talk about one area that we didn't cover in 2022, uh, but I think it's just super important as we think about 2023 is corporate. Um, so it, it also seems largely corporate hasn't really restarted yet, um, nowhere close to what it was in 2023. I mean, sorry, in 2019. What's your view? Has, has corporate permanently changed and it just will never get back to those levels? I, I heard some quotes, Gary, from I think it was the Focus Right Conference with people saying that it's completely flipped. It used to be like 70, 30 uh, corporate to leisure in US and now it's 30, 70 corporate to leisure, completely like flipped around. What's your view on corporate travel in Southeast Asia in 2023? It's a really good question. You're right. It, has, it hasn't come back to the, to the levels anywhere near of, of what it was before. But I don't think it, that was expected. I think we always thought that that might be one of the, the slower markets to, to start to pick up. Because as you said, has it changed forever? Has it changed for the short term? Has it changed um, you know, maybe just for the next year or two? Obviously, China reopening would have a big impact on that because so much business travel comes in and out of China also Japan and Korea as well. So now that those, certainly Japan and Korea are reopened, uh, Hong Kong as well, China hopefully at some point next year, you will see much more inter-regional business traveler, I think. But in terms of what that actually means, how short term that is, uh, what kind of spending we're going to see from that, how that will impact on the airlines, on the hotel rates, I think it's, it's, it's just so difficult to say. It, it, you made a good point about the US and you can see it wherever you travel in the US at the moment. You know, leisure travel is really, really important. I think that's simply because it's the opportunity to travel again. You know, people have got their, free, their travel freedoms back and they're enjoying them. But the, the whole uh, economic system has changed since the pandemic. You know, companies are very uh, much stronger on costs. They're much more, you know, heavy on how they're going to allow people to travel, where they're going to go, what their purpose for traveling is. So. You know, while companies are retrenching, while, you know, the big tech companies are laying off people at the moment, we're not going to see uh, corporate travel accelerating anytime soon, I don't think. Mm. I mean, one interesting stat that I came across last week was that the Kuala Lumpur Convention Center has now reached 90 percent of its 2019 levels for mice, which I thought was pretty um, surprising. Actually, um, I was really kind of heartened to read that. And I think that there is still this drive for mice. And I think, you know, this um, this change where companies have got a lot more remote is also going to power this because ultimately you still need to get your companies, the whole company together at some point to be together, right? To build those relationships. There's only so much you can do um, virtually. So this kind of thing is going to happen. Maybe corporate travel and mice are, well, I mean, mice is definitely going to happen, but perhaps just happen in a slightly different way. 
And I think what's also been kind of interesting this year is how much governments have been using mice to power um, tourism mm. recovery. So Bali obviously mm. has had the G20, Bangkok had APEC. Mm. Um, they've had some really big, even Singapore with the Formula One um, event of sorts, right? All of these have been really powering the economy, but it's how do you maximize that and how do you keep that momentum going? Um, That's a great uh, point. I'm with you on that, Hannah. I think that uh, corporate, at least in 2023, corporate, the kind of corporate, I would call them independent traveler, just going on a random mm. business trip, this will definitely remain far below I think even in this region, corporations are much more strict on thinking about, do you really have to make that trip? Um, but I think there's an increase in interest in getting, you know, companies, teams together or doing events for customers. Hannah and I were just both recently um, in Singapore speaking at ITB, but that's a huge convention center and it was completely jammed. So there was not only the ITB event, there was like a, a GovSec event. I mean, everywhere you went in this huge convention facility, completely sold out. Um, so I think the, you know, MICE is certainly going strong and I expect that to continue. Um, and as we looked at 2022, 2023 budgets, you know, we're also thinking about the, doing events for customers, getting teams together suddenly becomes more important. I think that you've made both made the point that similar to what I was making is budgeted for MICE and business travel will we'll come back. Of course it will, you know, mm -hmm. if you can pre-plan it. But, you know, business travel again, like leisure travel in 2019, really required on ad hoc frequency and people going and doing meetings as they were required, as deals came alive, you know, that kind of thing. And some of those may be being done on, on Zoom right now. Do Will they be done uh, on screen or in person in 2023? Quite hard to say. I mean, I agree with you. I think my certain, particularly incentives and team building events will be strong. A lot of those will be domestic, but they will be international as well. The China market will drive that also. Mm. So one question I want to ask you, Brett. So this is something that I've seen being reported by people like the Thai Hotels Association who are saying that um, occupancy levels in five-star hotels are doing pretty okay. They're doing a lot better than the lower-star hotels, a lot because they can rely on MICE momentum. Is that something that you have also seen in terms of kind of booking demand? Is it more for the lower, uh, more for the higher-starred kind of properties rather than lower-star ones? You got that kind of stat? Yeah, I think that my answer would be uh, I'm getting I'm getting schooled by Gary. I mean, my answer would be a Gary answer, which is uh, it depends on the market. Nice. Um, so yeah. it, it's very different uh, depending on which city and and what the profile of uh, and actually even the individual property. So who were that mm -hmm. properties customers pre pandemic uh, can also make a big difference. Um, for example. I mean, Indonesians just have some favorite hotels. So in Indonesian, this is not corporate, but Indonesian leisure travelers, when they go to Singapore, love, you know, one of a few hotels. If you're that, as soon as Indonesia open and Singapore open, if you're one of those hotels you've been for sure in, corporates actually, corporate and corporate events are the same. So some hotels really benefiting um, as soon as Southeast Asia open, but some hotels uh, um, still far behind. So I think it, it really depends. Mm. And on those booking trends, I mean, you and I spoke two or three months ago, Brett, and you made some very interesting points about payments, how people are actually paying for, for bookings now. And you were talking about virtual card payments, things like that. I mean, is that something that's that's changing the market? It's one of the biggest changes we've seen. So we're, we're a very specific, you know, B2B specific business. Um, so certainly for people watching this broadcast, maybe interesting if you're if you're watching it because you know who MG is. Uh, but in the B2B space, one of the biggest changes uh, that we've seen is a shift to VCC. So pre-pandemic, 
if you went back to 2017 or 18, maybe 3%. But 2019, maybe uh, 8 to 10% of our transactions were via virtual credit card, which means we give the hotel a, a virtual credit card. When the customer actually shows up, you know, they swipe that virtual card at check-in and get payment. Coming, coming into 2022, end of year, you know, we're, we're far above uh, 40% and expect it to actually be the dominant form of payment um, coming into 2023. Um, so this is a big shift in the B2B space um, where, you know, more than half of your transactions have shifted to a new method of payment. Um, over and what's driving time. that growth? Is it, is it convenience? Is it, does it, is it just easier to use? Uh, it's a couple of things. One is, you know, hotels increasingly looking to digitize things. So the other model is they invoice uh, these B2B, they invoice B2B players like me a month, you know, after after check-in once or twice a month, right? So it creates manual processes and two, it slows their time to cash. So I think they're, they're now willing to, uh, you know, work on the digitization necessary uh, to improve their quality of data, plus accelerate their time to cash. This is actually from uh, a slide from July that Demas is pulling out. So in November, mm -hmm. we're north of 40%. Wow. That's a huge growth, huge growth. Did you expect that? Did you foresee that? I did not. I wish uh, our, our CFO, Mernie Hollis, uh, does some sessions with some of the financial leaders at different hotels in this market. Um, so it, it, is a, it is a really interesting topic. Uh, we could try to cover some kind of payment trends in... Uh, b2b on a different session so it's certainly fr a front and center topic for for us we could go more in depth on at a different session we're uh we're we're coming to the end of the session so almost uh one hour in i want to thank both of you it's been fantastic to connect with you again get insights from you again i wonder if we can close out with you and i, I didn't give you this ahead of time so it's really going to be you give me your your thoughts what are your kind of hopes for 2023 for Southeast Asian travel? Um, I think my hope, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Then. I think my hope is that governments don't forget about domestic travel. Um, and I think I probably said something similar maybe at the beginning of the year. Um, but, you know, international tourists, it's very easy to get very excited about them. Um, but we have seen it has been slow. Um, domestic tourists are there. If you're looking at domestic air capacity, like you were saying, Brett, a lot of that is either almost at pre-pandemic capacity or has exceeded it. There's plenty of potential still within domestic that needs to be developed. I just hope that they don't lose focus on that and uh, get lost in the glitz of the uh, international travelers. That's very sage advice, not just for governments, but also for individual travel businesses, yeah. right? Well, I would definitely agree with that. I think what I would like to see and what we would hope for is that we just see greater diversity in, in the discussions around travel and tourism, not just about inbound, not just about domestic, but some of the issues that we've raised here, talking about corporate and mice, those are going to be big growth drivers next year. So we need to, to get back to that holistic view of travel and tourism where it's a very, very big industry, has all these different sub-segments, which are really, really important. Let's stop just talking about inbound tourism because that is an important part of it, of course. In some countries in our region, it's more important than others. But if you look at the way Singapore is rebuilding at the moment, it's really looking at all its different segments, its business segment, its cruise segment, its uh, inbound and outbound, its flight connectivity. I think we have to take a little bit of a lesson around the region to do that because it's not just about inbound travel. Uh, it's, it, domestic is still going to be very, very important. Uh, let's look at the industry as a much bigger thing than we've been doing in the past year. All right. Fantastic. Gary. Gary, Hannah, thank you so much for joining the MG, MG Leadership Series today. 
uh, look forward to doing this as an annual event. You guys have been so insightful. Yeah. Thank you. Great, great to catch up again, Brett. Great to speak to All you. All right. Bye-bye.